Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker, speaking to you from GDC in San Francisco. My guest today is Dr. Lane Nooney, who is an assistant professor of digital media at Georgia Tech. Lane was presenting at GDC on video game history and game preservation. And I talked with her about those topics, as well as her work on the history of Sierra Online. We wrapped up by discussing her new journal venture called ROMCHIP, which will take a hybrid open access approach to publishing pieces on game history. Normally, History Respond is about how history is portrayed in video games, but I'm always interested to learn more about historians who research video game history. I hope you are too. With that said, here's the interview. So, Lane, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, so, you're in the midst of working on a history of Sierra Online, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that project. <laughs> sure. Uh, it's um, really large, is the first thing I ever <laughs> tell you about that project. Um, what? Uh, so, I got into that project actually because I was originally as a graduate student trying to write a history of the personal computer mm. um, and I had a little section another in there. huge project yes right? you know very I, <laughs> I, I like to think small I guess is my problem um, and I had a little chapter in there um, or in particular it was about the relationship between the personal computer and domestic space I was interested in the cultural history of the personal computer mm -hmm. the way it changed our um, modes of interaction with one another in daily life and I had a kind of slice of that project that was focused on this mythology I was kind of knew of, of this woman who made her games at her kitchen table, which was uh, legendarily Roberta Williams, right? So mm -hmm. the, one of the original co-founders, premier designer, one of the first female game designers in, in uh, game history. And uh, as you would suspect, that original personal computer project wound up being way too big. And so the project kind of um, collapsed down into just being about Sierra. Right. What happened was when I went into the archive, and I started doing the slightest amount of digging, uh, what I kept finding was all of these, it's like every time I picked up a rock, like a hundred scorpions like came out of it. You know, There was all of this stuff I was finding that really began to deconstruct the way that we had told the history of games. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just about Roberta. You know, I've discovered that Sierra Online produced one of the first game engines. Um, wow. You know, their AGI is a 10 year precedent to the engine that built Doom. Um, you know, that sets up the way that the labor infrastructure works, right, in the game industry even till today. Um, I found out all of this interesting stuff about the relationships between uh, game software producers and the early microcomputer industry in the late 70s and early 80s. It was like for every time period, Sierra actually had a role from the 80s to the, to the end of the 90s. And, you know, in each moment it had this, it turned out to be a case that was actually able to tell the, the history of the of computer gaming over the last two decades of the 20th century through one company. Mm. Yeah. Wow, so that sounds still like a huge project, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I don't go in for completionism, yeah, so yeah. someone else can fill in my <laughs> gaps. Well, so you mentioned uh, Roberta Williams there, and I really enjoyed your article uh, in Game Studies that kind of focuses on Roberta Williams, and you know, you kind of have uh, a focus there on trying to include gender history in the history of video games more generally. and. I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit, uh, you know, about why you think it is that it's so difficult to include gender aspects or the history of women in games 
uh, in the history of games more generally. I mean, you talk about in that article how you know, most general histories of video games, it's kind of seen as uh, the great men of uh, gaming past, these gaming gods uh, who bequeathed, uh, you know, Nintendo and all of these uh, different, uh, you know, formative games, the founding fathers, basically. Uh, so I'm just wondering, you know, I mean, in your experience of researching on Roberta and others, I mean, why do you think it's so difficult to, to get that history included? Well, I think it has something to do with the way that we don't really understand very well um, what history is in, mm. um, you know, a lot of my agenda in that article was to was to stop asking questions about where are women in game history, right? A, lo a lot of the article, a lot of the work we see is obsessed with finding these, these incidents, right? Like this, you know, finding these lost women, right? This kind of hidden figures model of telling the history of mm -hmm. computing or gaming or technology really generally, right? Sure. Um, and what I wanted to do was kind of a, um, what I would call a methodological move where I ask a question about why do women show up in history the way that they do? Because when you, when you ask that question instead, it actually tells you what we value in history, right? It reveals something to us that otherwise would kind of remain uh, cloaked or not visible, right? And so we can keep doing this kind of, um, you know, what I call the additive move, right? We can keep f trying to dig up these women, but the fact is, this was an industry that, you know, was dominated by men because of long-standing, uh, you know, cultural and um, industry issues related to who and how people had access to computers, mm -hmm. right? There's there's a decades-long explanation for why you don't see women in the history of games more prominently, um, and what was always struck me is that no one ever thought that it was like really weird that Roberta was actually even visible in this history at all. Right. And, and so what I wanted to do was say, actually, no, we should look at how unusual this is because there's all of these historical contours to her, like the fact that she didn't program, that she wasn't interested in computers in any way. Really, I mean, she becomes one of the first incidents we have of a separation between designer and programmer, right? Like that gets instantiated in her mm -hmm. and then it becomes the development model for all of Sierra. They actually build their core gaming technology around the idea that designer and programmer are different roles, right? And they can be kind of almost, uh, you know, segmented on a kind of factory line in a certain way mm -hmm. when it comes to game development. Uh, so, you know, and often, you know, another part of this is I think we, we're always, we're looking for these kind of auteurs, these stars, right? We're looking for famous female game designers or famous female programmers who have been lost in history. And the approach I take in a lot of the Sierra work is I'm trying to find incidents of, uh, you know, where you do find women more frequently is in, you know, I've interviewed their head of customer service. I've interviewed their lead sales representatives. Those women have stories that are just as unbelievable as mm. anyone working on the design and mm -hmm. the programming of these games. Uh, and so and they have probably have a, a better view of kind of the overall project, whereas uh, they have a totally distinct view, right? right? So when I talk to, you know, you know, the woman who was their head sales representative in the early 90s, she has a better grasp of the economics of the game industry mm -hmm. than anyone I've talked to, right? Mm -hmm. That's not something Roberta knew anything about. Um, and so you get these different qualities of stories. And so it's also about thinking expansively about what is the labor of the game industry? Who right. is included in it? Um, and who are we not telling stories about? So a lot of the Sierra work is actually very kind of bottom up. I go and I track down um, people who worked in the factory, people who worked in you know, public relations or customer support, and I try to 
get their stories to figure out, let's stop just thinking that design is the only part of this mm -hmm. industry. And actually, because we, we have no functional history of how this industry happened. What we have are a bunch of stories about you know, guys in boardrooms who were flinging money around. Mm -hmm. You know, we have the Nolan Bushnell story and, you know. Right, this image of you know, a, a tycoon sitting yeah, there with a yeah, cigar or, in know, his mouth. And, Jack yeah. Trammell. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we don't, you know, in the absence of that, we have not asked any questions about, so how did this, like, happen? You know, like, yeah. what were the actual dynamics that allowed an industry like this to emerge? And we've kind of relied on this, this sort of, dumb version of word of mouth yeah. or, or, or just kind of general industry mythology when we can actually begin to answer these questions. Yeah, using archives and whatnot. Uh, and you've been contributing a lot to kind of uh, the archives or early video games. You've been doing a lot of oral histories uh, for this project on Sierra Online. And I'm just wondering if you could kind of tell us what's that experience been like? I mean, has it been difficult to track down some of these uh, company members, the factory uh, workers, and you know how willing have they been uh, to contribute to this project? So one of the things that made Sierra a kind of optimal case when you're thinking about the history of games is that Sierra was run out of a very remote rural town in uh, kind of central California called Oakhurst. It's about 30 minutes uh, south of the southern entrance to Yosemite National Park. You know, it's an it's an unincorporated city or town, really. You know, it's just a it's just a kind of smattering of businesses spread out across a two lane highway. It's very, very regional. Right? It's not a tech hub in any sense. Um, and what that meant, the fact that the company ran out of there for you know, it held its it held some form there for almost eighteen years, nineteen years. Um, it meant that many of the people. First, it meant that Ken Williams had to hire anybody who moved, mm -hmm. right? Like he had to staff a company of hundreds of people in a town of a couple thousand, Yeah. right? So he was hiring lots of people who didn't have any particular experience in the game industry, but were like fundamentally locals. Also, you know, he would bring people, he, would, he was able to hire into the town, but often people weren't gonna go there, period, unless they were actually interested in that kind of lifestyle. If you add 30 years to that event, what it turns out is that there's a whole bunch of people still in Oakhurst who worked at this company, right? right? The, so the town became kind so of So kind of like a company town. Um, yeah, in the way that we talk about, you know, certain areas in, you know, the Rust Belt right. being, being related to the auto industry, uh, you find you literally can't walk around that town without running into somebody who worked at Sierra, who knew somebody at Sierra. You know, everywhere I go, somebody knows somebody who had something to do with that company, mm -hmm. which meant that when I wanted to do oral history, uh, what I did was I wrote myself a press release and I got it run in the town paper and I asked people, <laughs> I asked who would, if anyone was willing to speak to me. Um, and so there is a certain amount of self-selection that happens, sure. right? You get the people who are most interested first and then, you know, often they may lead you to someone else who leads you to someone else. Um, I would say I usually, I would say maybe two thirds of the time, maybe it's going down, maybe 60% of the time I get yeses. And then, you know, I get a combination of never hearing back or, uh, you know, folks who just kind of decide to decline mm -hmm. um, for, you know, often for just personal reasons or, um, so I would say that, you know, usually by the time I'm in a house with you talking to you, like you're, you're willing and you're kind of excited about the process. Um, What's been most interesting for me is, you know, I never thought, I never had any intention of doing oral history until I sort of realized that the game industry has no, 
has no internal documentation of itself. And I was like, <laughs> the only people who know this stuff are the people. Um, and they're, you know, memory phrased really quickly. So I'm going to get, try and get some correct-ish version right. of this story while they're still alive. Um, but you, you do wind up, how would I put it? It's like you're... For many of these people, it's the first time anyone's ever asked them to tell the story of their lives, right? right? I mean, Ken and Roberta and Al Lowe and those guys are used to it, right? They've been interviewed ad nauseum. But talking to someone who, for me to show up and say, like, you ran customer service and that was a really big deal and I actually have some understanding of why that is. And I know the names of all the people in your department, you know, because I've been doing this for a while. Um, the kind of conversation you have is, is often very emotional. Um, you know, you're... Uh, people have interest, really compelling moments of like self-reflection in the experience of sitting with you. You know, these interviews go on for, I've never had one last less than 90 minutes. Usually they go wow. somewhere between three to four. Wow. Um, Al Lowe was my, I talked to Al Lowe for eight hours between two days. <laughs> well, uh, I'm sure, you know, speaking as somebody who's interested in this project and history of games more generally, we really thank you for doing all that work and then uh, contributing to the archives. Um, so, you know, you talked, you mentioned briefly there uh, about how there's not a lot of internal documentation. Uh, you know, at least if it was ever created, that survived uh, for the video game uh, industry and for the history of video games. I mean, could you describe for us what are some of the main challenges that faces somebody who's interested in studying the history of video games? Um, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of hand-waving about how we're losing our history and, you know, we have to do game preservation. And, and the, I look at it and I'm like, I think we've actually done a pretty okay job keeping a lot of the stuff around, mm -hmm. right? So, so you can think about this as kind of like being at a restaurant, right? You have the front of the house and the back of the house. And the front of the house is the games, right? It's, it's the player magazines. It's the, you know, maybe some of the stuff left behind by fan communities. That stuff is actually pretty visible. Um, it's been, you know, there's, you know, kind of two or three major institutions that are collecting that stuff. Um, in addition to the Internet Archive, which is kind of working on digitizing various components of it. Um, what we don't really have is like, how did the food actually get made? Mm. Right. And that's a question of, do I have access to organization charts, to profit and, profit and loss sheets, internal memorandum, right? The kind of... Um, the, the stuff that actually explains to me the nature of your communication, how your company was organized. I mean, I, I went into Sierra not even understanding what its departments were, right? Right, And I had to sit down and have very, very like 101 conversations with like, how was this company divided? Um, I was fortunate enough to find a company, an inter like a, a report that Sierra had produced for its venture capitalists in 1986 in someone else's archive. Wow. Like in the archive, in Doug Carlston's collection at the Strong Museum of Play, he had this like incredibly useful economic document kind of going through where Sierra was as a company in the mid-1980s um, that Sierra didn't keep, right? Uh, and so what, what you're, the, the biggest problem is that, okay, so like a history, like we know the chronology of games. That's actually not very interesting. Um, what we don't have much access to is an explanation of like how did this company actually function how did it interact in the broader world right what's its you know uh, some of the most interesting stuff I've uh, the, uh, you know I, I get these great stories about 
you know, when the game industry realized that they had to deal with SAG and stuff like that, right. right? Like these moments where the game industry brushes up against other institutions and industries and economies are actually where the story of games is. If all our history does is point us back to games, then we're not doing a very good job right. writing history. Like the point of it is to put it into a broader context and to explain how games form one kind of kind of compelling media experience within a whole ecology. And so, you know, without that, that understanding of like, how's all this stuff getting done? We really lack that. All we have is this kind of colorful, de you know, decoration that can sit on a shelf, but right. it can't actually tell us anything right. about the world. Yeah, and I guess try to move away also from this kind of auteur level yeah. of the you know, discussion about, you know, specific game makers and give a company-wide view. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I think that there's, you know, more than enough work to go around, but I think one of, one of the, the things that's important to understand about historians is that I'm not, I'm not in this because I, I love games. I'm in this because I love history, mm -hmm. and I think that games are good historical problems. Um, and so, you know, when you go in, if you go in thinking that what you want to do is valorize a company or, or affirm its legacy, I think you're kind of already beginning with the wrong foot, right? right? You, you have to you have to kind of get over your self-interest in the project in order, I think, to, to look at these things in a way that they've never been looked at before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, so just to wrap up here, uh, you know, I noticed uh, that you are uh, now working uh, for a journal of game history called ROMCHIP. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that journal, what the direction is, and if people are interested in submitting, you know, what that process is like. So that is, uh, it is in production. Okay. Right? So th this was a... Um, it's not out yet. Uh, we're hoping for a launch in 2018. This is a, a project that I, um, you know, it, it's, I'm doing it collaboratively with Henry Lowood, who's a curator um, in the uh, archives at Stanford. He's probably one of the other kind of best known people who works in uh, the history, in game preservation and game history. Mm -hmm. And also uh, Rayford Gwynns, who was actually my dissertation advisor when I got my doctorate at Stony Brook. He wrote a really excellent book called um, uh, game after um, about kind of the cultural afterlife of games. It's very much a book for historians, mm -hmm. for museum curators. You know, it's it's one of the great works. I think it's I consider it to be one of the first real works of video game historiography mm. ever written. Kind of history about the history of games, right? Um, we were actually, you know, all happened to be kicking around at a conference uh, maybe a year and a half ago, and we were saying, you know, if we don't start a game history journal, someone else will, and <laughs> we're not going to like it. <laughs> so let's let's make it happen, you know? Um, and a lot of what I have pushed for in the forming of this, of this journal, um, because all of us come out of very straight up academic backgrounds, sure. Ray and Henry are older than me, and they have worked, uh, you know, at very traditional kind of peer-reviewed venues. I really wanted to find something that would speak to uh, they could speak across these borders. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, sometimes I've explained this as: imagine if Kill Screen had a doctorate, right? It's I, I, I want writing that is accessible without losing its rigor, um, and I want I wanted to very in, you know we all wanted to kind of very intentionally design a format that would allow for the intersection of many different invested people. So we have you know the journal is going to have three sections, and the first is going to be articles. Um, and those are traditional academic peer-reviewed, you know, written by people with, 
you know, degrees and, and stuff like that. You know, the kind of stuff you need to be able to get tenure at sure. university, sure. right? Um, and, you know, we have this amazing uh, editorial board that we've already put together of like every great game historian kind of, you know, around the globe so far. Um, and then we have a section that we want to call interviews, which would serve as both a place for oral history, for the publication of kind of edited oral histories, um, as well as interviews that people want to conduct either with people, uh, you know, people in the industry in the present or the past. So that's something where I could see someone in the industry with a strong interest in history, maybe conducting interviews or, or, or beginning a practice of doing oral history. We wanted it to be both a place to, pr to produce and to like disseminate oral history uh, and and interviews for future historians mm -hmm. and something that would be useful in the present. So I, we wanted to give a venue to that kind of work. Right. And then the third section is called artifacts. And the idea there is that they would be kind of shorter kind of object lessons on specific, you know, either new acquisitions at a museum or, you know, maybe we get, a, you know, a programmer who wants to do a close reading of a piece of code from a game or something like that. Yeah. So that we could begin to think about, you know, every historian has to put together their history using these little objects, right? Right. And so what if we just had uh, kind of, you know, short, close readings of particular things? Source analysis. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and that that can be written by academics, it can be written by grad students, it can be written by people in the industry. You just have to be a good writer and a good thinker, right? right? to contribute to that kind of process. And so, yeah, we wanted to, I think, denaturalize, um, or kind of, that's a really dumb term to use. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think we wanted to have something that would actually produce a dialogue across the industry and the academy. Like, I think so much of my work has really tilted in that direction because I've seen the game industry is, I think, surprisingly porous in a lot of ways. Like, the fact that I can show up at GDC and be giving a talk is, not something you could get away with in a lot of other industries. Absolutely. I'm uh, here on a press pass, which yeah, is even more ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's, it has a certain <laughs> pliancy that I think is really interesting, and it is, I think, open to conversations in ways that other industries are not. Right. And so I think there could be, you know, there could be interesting and, and dynamic and useful uh, intersections to be had here, right? right? I have very easy conversations with game designers, you know, yeah. at these kinds of spaces. Uh, and so I wanted something that would feel comfortable for everyone involved, was the kind of the idea of the journal. We're hoping for a launch in early 2018. Okay. It's a little bit hung up on what happens with our, we have to use a kind of open source, um, or sorry, an open access kind of journal platform called Open Journal Systems. Okay. So we're getting kind of a, you know, we have to get a, we have to get someone trained in that system and yeah. hire them to build us a website that doesn't look like total garbage, you know, <laughs> which wow. is kind of the problem with a lot of these, um, uh, you know, open access platforms is that they're not very well designed. And I, I yeah. do want to make sure we make something that, um, you know, people feel good looking at right. as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, great. That's really exciting. And we'll look forward to that in 2018. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, speaking as somebody who started an academic journal while he was in graduate school, I can tell you, get ready for the most work you've ever had in your entire life, times infinity. It's I've, ridiculous. I've, I've worked for the Journal of Visual Culture for seven mm -hmm. years as like a managing editor. So okay. Like, oh, so you know. I know yeah. exactly what <laughs> I'm doing. I just wanted to transfer that labor to something I, that, that I, you, you're yeah, really focused that, on. That yeah. uh, felt a little closer to my mission. Yeah. All right, well, I think that's all the time we've got. I know you've got to get ready for your talk, but Lane, thank you so much thank for joining you. us on the show. Lovely talk.